Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, I'm pleased to say that another listener has come through for me. I asked for help a few months ago on a post on patreon.com slash mostnotorious from my patrons. The, the question basically was, what is your hometown and are there any especially fascinating historical true crimes that you remember hearing about while growing up there. Colette from Melbourne, Australia had a few, along with some book suggestions. And I was able to track down an author of one of those books, and we've got the interview here. It's a subject that I'm excited to share with you today. So, my guest today is Ian W. Shaw, prolific author of many, many books, including The Bloodbath, the Ghosts of Roebuck Bay, and the Ragtag Fleet. He's here with me to talk about a great one. His book called Murder at Dusk, How U.S. Soldier and Smiling Psychopath Eddie Leonsky Terrorized Wartime Melbourne. Thank you so much for your time today. What a, what a great title. Thank you, Eric. Yes, it, it's catchy. Were, were the crimes that you write about in this book crimes that you've been familiar with for a long time? Are, are they well known in Australia? Uh, yes, Eric, they are. The, the genesis of the book is pretty much my family history, that both my parents were in the uh, Royal Australian Air Force during World War Two, And um, two of my mother's sisters were also in the Air Force and they were nurses. And they were in Melbourne when Eddie Leonsky went on his uh, killing spree. And I grew up with stories from mum and dad and, and aunties and uncles about the arrival of the Americans in World War Two and just the total contrast between the first couple of months they were here and the response of 
Melburnians and, and Australians in general to the Americans after Eddie Leonsky started killing uh, women in Melbourne. So the the background to the the book was it was a story that I was familiar with as as are most Australians, but it was a story whose details I just didn't know. And in discussions with uh, an editor at, at Hachette, we decided it was a story that that hadn't been told fully. And uh, away I went and, and spent you know twelve fifteen months researching it, and then then wrote the book that you've just finished. Wow! Excellent. So let's start with Australia in the 1940s. Uh, what was wartime Australia like? It was frightening for the Australians because we're a very, very large country with a very, very small population. And when uh, the war in Europe broke out, a lot of Australia's fighting men were sent to the Middle East uh, to protect Egypt in particular and the Middle Eastern oil fields. A lot of our young men who joined the Air Force served in Great Britain and Australia was relatively unprotected. And then in 1941, when the Japanese started the Pacific War by bombing Pearl Harbour, they also invaded northern Malaya. And uh, Malaya and Singapore, there were over 15,000 Australian troops there, which left very few in Australia. So when the Japanese entered the war, Australia was quite a fearful place because they kept getting closer and closer and there was a, a genuine fear that Australia would be invaded and conquered by the Japanese. Why were Americans stationed in Melbourne? Yeah, there were a number of American troops being dispatched to the Philippines before the Japanese attacked. And of course, after that attack and the um, the, the damage the Japanese Air Force in particular did to American forces in the Philippines, those forces were diverted to Australia. Some of them continued on from Australia to Java to confront the Japanese there, but a lot were held in Australia as a kind of mobile reserve to see how things were going before General MacArthur, who'd, who'd been appointed uh, the Supreme Commander for the theatre, before MacArthur had determined what strategy, what tactics he would use to um, confront the Japanese. So from early 1942, um, the, the first American troops arrived in December 1941, but there was quite a build-up from early 1942 and uh, probably early 42, 60,000 US troops in Australia, building up to a maximum of, of probably 150,000, 200,000 later that year. And they were here for training, for uh, acclimatisation, and then were moved on to um, places like New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and up into the Central Pacific. What were some of the stereotypes Australians had towards Americans during this time, and vice versa? The Australians didn't know a lot about the United States. They, they were traditionally looking to England, the United Kingdom, as, as the home country and traditionally looked to Great Britain for inspiration in, in terms of uh, politics and um, develop, social development, sporting developments, things like that. But they knew or they thought they knew a lot about America from cinema, from, from the movies, and American movies have always been incredibly popular in Australia. So you had a, a kind of bifurcation between 
we looked to Europe, in particular the United Kingdom, for the source of our, our culture, but at the same time, we just devoured American popular culture um, voraciously. And our, our image of America and Americans was very much based on what we saw coming out of Hollywood. So for the typical Melbourneian who encountered an American GI in their neighborhood, how did they perceive them? What were the broad generalizations? Well, the, the immediate impact was visual, that the Australian Army uniform, and, and most Australian servicemen were in the Army, much more than in the uh, Navy, for instance, or the Air Force. And the Australian Army uniform was a terrible drab khaki, and it was based on a First World War British design with a, what was called a Norfolk jacket. and It was thick wool, very, very scratchy, and... Um, to be honest, a very unattractive look for anyone, let alone a soldier. The Americans, when they arrived, the American Army in particular, um, appeared to have designer uh, clothes on. The fabrics were, were lovely compared to the rough wool. They uh, had different coloured braiding on their caps. They had different caps and hats and um, different colours their uniforms fitted rather than the one-size-fits-all approach that the Australian Army appeared to adopt. So visually, they were very unlike Australian servicemen. And, of course, as soon as they opened their mouth, the, the, the accent just, you know, Australians fell in love with that accent through Hollywood, and here it was in the flesh. And I think I've, I've never been able to um, track down any documentation on it, but it seems to me the Americans servicemen were very, very well drilled and well briefed about how to behave towards the civilian population because, again, from from my mother and, and her sisters, just the manners were incredible. And uh, Australians don't put a lot of store in, in good manners generally. Yeah, there, there are certain standards that are adhered to, but the Americans would, would open doors and smile and greet people and uh, all the things that the more reticent Australians didn't do, the Americans did. So there was this visual impact, there was this outflowing of warmth towards them because not only were they good-looking young men, well-dressed, they were basically here to save us from the Japanese and, and that was a very, very important backdrop to the relationship between the US servicemen and the Australian civilian population. Um, as you said, many of the Australian soldiers were overseas fighting and women were still there and suddenly these American GIs <laughs> show up, start roaming the streets. Was there resentment by Australian men about this situation? Yeah, there was. And uh, the, the phrase was used here and it was used in the United Kingdom. And it was uh, the Americans are overpaid, oversexed and over here. And there was resentment from young Australian males who saw uh, American servicemen who were paid approximately twice as much as their Australian counterparts. They had access through the PX stores to to... Uh, you know, things like chocolate bars and silk stockings and, and things that were either unavailable or, or quite badly or severely rationed here in Australia. So there was jealousy mixed with uh, envy. And 
for a while, let's say you know, two to three months, the, the goodwill carried it all before it. But by, I guess, April, May, when, when Eddie started um, coming to attention, for the men at least, a lot of the luster had worn off, that there were a lot of young Australian women, and because there was a shortage of men, they would date US servicemen and the Australians could only look on enviously. Uh, you know, they couldn't afford to take these women out. They couldn't afford to do this, couldn't afford to do that. So, yeah, it didn't take all that long before there was quite an element of, of uh, envy and jealousy. So the central figure in your story is Edward Joseph Eddie Leonsky. Give us an idea about the kind of kid he was and the environment he grew up in. He, um, Eddie Leonsky had a, what is still called a troubled upbringing. His, uh, natural father was an alcoholic. His father and mother were both migrants to the US from Eastern Europe, from, from Russia and that part of Poland that, that Russia, uh, controlled in the late 19th century. His father beat his mother, walked out eventually and, and, and didn't come back. She took up with another Eastern European uh, migrant who was also uh, a vicious husband, a, a drinker who would knock her around, knock the kids around. And I think there were elements of mental instability, whether it was brought on by the drinking, whether it was what would now be fetal alcohol syndrome, but there were there were issues in the family in terms of mental stability. His, his mother had a, a very severe breakdown. One of his brothers, Arthur, was institutionalised for life from about the age of 21. So it wasn't a, a warm nuclear family. It was a family where the adult male in the, 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 the grouping would come and go according to work, according to alcohol, according to whether he had a girlfriend. What, what did he look like? Was he smart? Was he social? He, um, he, he was a smart guy. He had a lot of, I, I guess you'd call it rat cunning. He, he knew how to operate in a whole range of environments. At school, he, when he applied himself, he was as good as anyone else in his class. But he would also manipulate the teachers. He would manipulate those around him so he didn't have to work to capacity. He could still get by. He um, was inordinately proud of his physique. He, he was a good-looking young man. He would have been probably, uh, I guess, just over six foot, maybe six one, blonde, this lovely open face, broad smile, uh, great physique. He, he, he got into bodybuilding, uh, boxing, wrestling. He developed the ability for these quite bizarre feats of strength, walking on his hands, lifting heavy weights and carrying them over his head for long distances and um, was was just a little bit different to most of the kids he grew up around. What path did... Leonsky take to join the American army? Was it just that there was an expectation for him to do it? Was it because that's what his, his friends and classmates were doing? Or did he really feel strongly about doing his patriotic duty? 
Uh, yeah, he was uh, so selective service. He he went in through that. It wasn't in one way. It wasn't a career he would have chosen for himself because he, at age twenty twenty one, he um, got into petty crime, but was kind of the big guy on the block. Um, he got into trouble with the police on minor charges, but. There are enough of them and there are enough warnings to suggest that he and, and his older brother, John, uh, was, was a bit more of a hardcore criminal, that he would have gone down that path. And I think the army and being inducted into the army offered him a way out of, of the life he was drifting into. Um, he was also having an affair with his uh, brother's wife. Um, they hadn't been married all that long and she was seems to have been quite infatuated with Eddie and joining the army got him away from a number of circumstances that that didn't look like they'd have a happy ending. How did Leonsky's unit come to find itself in Melbourne? Was that the, the first place he was sent to from the US? And what was life like for him there at Camp Pell, right? Yeah, yeah. He was in a signals unit. He was in the headquarters company of a signals unit that was part of, of the American, became part of the American 41st Division, which was one of the two divisions uh, sent to Australia before going on to, to fight in the islands. He, uh, they, they travelled uh, from, I uh, can't remember the name of the fort, one of the forts, but travelled through um, San Antonio and across to San Francisco before they sailed for Australia. And he was involved in an incident in, in San Antonio where he apparently tried to strangle a, a young girl. Now, she may or may not have been a prostitute, but um, he attempted to strangle her. She screamed at the top of the voice. Police got involved. His unit was about to ship out, so there was no further action. The, the incident was noted. Then in San Francisco... He had some kind of breakdown in that he he uh, he was a big drinker. He went out drinking, came back to camp, I think it was the night before they were due to sail, and just broke down in tears and was inconsolable that he was leaving his mother, who he worshipped, and uh, his sister, who, who he was very close to as well. And, uh, it was the, I don't want to go, I need to be here, those kind of things. Then... You know, two weeks later, a voyage across the Pacific and, and they uh, disembarked in Melbourne and within four hours, they're in Camp Pell, which was a, a large military camp just on the northern edges of the uh, Melbourne CBD. Um, camp Pell itself was named after an American uh, Army Air Force fighter pilot who was killed in the first Japanese air raid on Darwin uh, in February 1942. What was the land used for before it became Campell? Uh, it was parklands. It was natural parklands on the edge of the uh, the city. And the Australian Army had actually taken it over uh, at the beginning of World War Two, and were in the process of converting it into an army camp for Australian soldiers. The arrival of the Americans and um, the pressures that that put on accommodation, it was just a natural spot for them. The Australian Army didn't really need it. They had lots of other camps and it was convenient to the city centre. It was convenient to lots of public transport. So it was handed over to the uh, American Army early 1942. So once he arrived, there was really 
just a lot of sitting around for he and the other guys at Camp Pell. Yeah, there was a lot of sitting around. Looking back through the, the papers when I was researching the book, there were 15,000 American servicemen at Camp Pell, and pretty much they had no more than half a day ahead of them each day in terms of training, work, things like that. So there was a lot of leave given to the, the servicemen. It was walking distance to downtown Melbourne. It would have taken them 20 minutes to get to the heart of, of the uh, business district. And there were very, very lax um, procedures about going out on leave, returning on leave. Um, it seemed to me and it seemed to the Americans at the camp that at any given time there up to half the troops who were supposed to be there weren't there. They were in, in town going to the uh, movies, going out drinking, seeing the sights. And again, at any given time, it was impossible for the American authorities to, to actually say who was and who wasn't in the camp. So he enjoys his free time from the accounts that you give. He goes out, drinks a lot, and not long after arriving there, he commits his first assault on a woman named Doreen Justice. Could you tell us what happened between them? Yeah, the, the term you do use here is he fell in with a bad crowd. and He didn't have any close friends in the military, uh, with one exception, another New Yorker named Joey Gallo. So he would go out generally by himself and, and go to one of the hotels, one of the pubs, drink a lot of alcohol and sometimes in a group with uh, Australians and a few other Americans, sometimes by himself. And it was after one of these sessions, he followed a young woman, Doreen, um, home to the, the apartment she was staying at just outside the city in a, uh, an inner suburb. Um, he f- spoke to her, asking her for directions, then she walked off and he followed her. And as she got to the front door, he crash tackled her from behind, forced her inside through the door of, of the apartment where she was staying, shut the door and um, basically attempted to rape her. Uh, she got away th- through quite a, a clever ruse to um, calm him or stop him temporarily, took off out the front door screaming for help. Eddie took off through the back door. Now, he left behind, he stripped off, and he left behind uh, one of his army singlets, which had the letters EJL uh, written on it. Uh, she also had a pretty good description of him. He was naked, and she saw him in totality, so had a very good physical description of Eddie. And uh, the problem was... Her husband, the young woman, Doreen's husband, uh, had had his own issues with the police. And when she informed him of this, he was very, very loath to speak to the police about it. So it was a crime, an attempted rape and an assault that went unreported until uh, several weeks later when, when Melbourne women were starting to be murdered. We will be right back. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. 
But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything Podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. It's so tragic there were multiple times where his actions could have been stopped. Didn't have to get to murder. No, he. I, I review his life, especially his life in Melbourne, and yeah, there were so many opportunities for, for intervention. But having said that, Eddie was also a master manipulator and could almost literally talk his way out of, of, of trouble and a couple of times he, he could have been um, locked up but was able to explain his way out of it. One, one time he was uh, absent without leave for, for several days and was in, as I said, with a group of, of uh, fairly unsavoury Australian characters, criminals, and was caught, taken back to Camp Pell. Uh, I think he got 30 days uh, in the stockade but was able to come out of that at the other end saying, I've learnt my lesson, thank you, Captain, you've, you've shown me the way. And people believed him. But while he was saying that, he was almost instantly back to his old behaviours, being absent without leave, drinking to excess day after day. All those things that had been getting him into trouble, he just returned to. But 
when asked, he would say, no, I'm over that. I'm, you know. So he was a, a very, very uh, manipulative person and he could carry it off, which was more important for him. What were the, the circumstances that led to Leonsky meeting Ivy Violet McLeod in May of 1942? Yeah, it was very opportunistic. Uh, Eddie had been out, as he did most days, drinking at a number of hotels. Uh, Melbourne's on Port Phillip Bay, and there are a number of bayside suburbs that have lovely hotels looking out over the water. And he'd been drinking at at least two of these hotels with a, a mixture of Australian and American servicemen and, and some women. And late in the evening um, of the Friday night, very late in the evening, he wandered away from a group of, of men and women who were going somewhere else to continue drinking and sat on the seawall between the, the main road and the beach and saw Ivy McLeod, who was a... Um, middle-aged, young middle-aged woman by herself waiting for a tram and she she uh, actually hopped into an arcade, a small arcade to get out of the weather and he saw her enter the arcade or saw her disappear and realised there was a doorway of, of some kind there and went over and um, almost instantly murdered her, uh, strangled her and I saw that as an opportunistic crime. He was quite clever about it. He, he checked that there was no one around. He um, approached her casually, pretended he didn't know she was there, all those things, and, and then murdered her and uh, escaped uh, detection. He heard footsteps coming towards this little alcove where the body was, and, and he took off. So the first murder was, was very opportunistic. And uh, Ivy had been visiting a man she hoped to, to, to later marry, and she was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there is a hero in this story, Detective Sid McGuffey. Kind of a stereotypical, as you write, hard-nosed police detective. He, he was assigned to the case. What did he do when he arrived at this first murder scene? How did he investigate it? And what were his initial conclusions about what had happened? Yeah, Sid McGuffin was, a, again, a typical hard-nosed detective. He'd been in the police force 30 years by then, and at least half of those 30 years he'd been a detective, and, and for 15 of them, um, or for 12 of them, he'd been in the Homicide Squad. He was one of the, the founding members of the Victoria Police Homicide Squad. He saw the murder site, saw the victim and realised it was a crime, I'll say a crime of passion, but not passion between people, but but a, a, a crime of passion where something within the murder, some passion within the murder had, had led him to really violently murder uh, Ivy McLeod. She, she um, was strangled. As she fell backwards, she fractured her skull. He he tore her clothes off and rearranged them to, to make whoever found it found the body um, make them be confronted by a, a, a woman's genitals fully displayed. It was a murder that was particularly vicious and was also designed to shock anyone who, who found the victim or who saw the victim. And to Sid McGuffey, it was very much 
this person or this man, because he knew it had to be a man, this man may strike again. It was so out of the ordinary and he believed the result of such rage that whoever had that rage within them would not be able to contain it forever. It would come out again. And uh, it did. Was this rage, in your opinion, a general hatred towards women or, or women of a certain social class? You said he loved his mother. What would you attribute his anger to? I think it was a generalised rage against women who, in one life, would have perhaps not taken a second look at him. Um, he he could be very, very gentlemanly towards women, um, opening doors, all all the things that you would like, but... Underneath it all, I believe he harboured this rage that um, his mother w- wasn't strong enough to stand up to her husband and then her, her other partner, that uh, his brother's wife, John's wife, was weak because she submitted to him and, and gave herself to him. And he, I think he believed deep down that women could not be trusted, that women were easily led, easily manipulated, and in fact so easily led and manipulated that I can kill them when and how I I choose to. And I think that was his fatal mental lapse, that, that he allowed himself to believe that he was superior to every woman in the world at least, and probably most of the men, and he would demonstrate that by killing when and how he chose to. So I I think he did have a a very misogynistic view of women. um, Traditionally, they're they're either Madonnas or, or whores, and I think that was his view of women. So next for Eddie Leonsky would be Pauline Thompson. Unlike his encounter with Ivy McLeod, his time with Pauline Thompson would be a little bit longer and more intimate. Yeah, and and I said the first murder, the Ivy McLeod murder, struck me as being very opportunistic. The Pauline Thompson one was more planned. I have no doubt he went out that night looking for a woman. Whether he intended to murder her right from the start, I'm not certain. But Pauline Thompson was a very charismatic young woman. She was a, a vivacious. She was a very good singer. Um she was married to a policeman, but they'd uh, separated, not not maritally separated, but they'd lived separately. He lived in a, um, a country town in, in rural Victoria. She was in Melbourne, which was the big smoke. And um, she was uh, uh, capable of, of consuming alcohol and not being obviously affected by it. And she matched Eddie in terms of self-belief. And I think they were together from seven o'clock in the evening till the early hours of the next morning and I think she matched his every move and uh, I think in doing that she almost guaranteed that he was going to kill her that um, she was all he would have considered her almost his equal but by killing her he proved that she wasn't this time he offers to walk her home but at some point he suddenly just reaches out and grabs her throat 
chokes her, sexually assaults her, and, and poses her body. Yeah, he. I think it's very much a staged murder in terms of the where and the when. He walked her home. They they went up the front steps of the boarding house where she was living. Uh, they both smoked a, a, a what turned out to be a last cigarette. Um, she believed that that uh, she'd probably see him again, but it was you know good night. Nothing more is going to happen here. And he just again attacked her viciously. He was a very very strong man, and once he got his hands on their their throat, there was only ever going to be one outcome. But she fought back really well as well as she could, but really vigorously. Um, I believe he, he, he raped her corpse um, and, again, left it on display. He spent dangerous minutes. He, he could have been caught at any any time, but he arranged her, her corpse, again, to shock whoever found it. Then, showing absolutely no, no fear, he... Um, took a purse, went down, there's a little laneway near where he murdered her, went through a purse, threw the contents he didn't want, just into the gutter, threw the purse onto the footpath and and disappeared into the night. So Detective McGuffey returns for this investigation and pretty quickly realizes that these two murders are connected. At what point does he, he figure out that the murderer is an American serviceman? Is it after this second murder? Yeah, it, after the, the Ivy McLeod murder, the, the one witness who, who saw Eddie disappearing into the, the darkness from behind identified that person walking away from Ivy's body as an American serviceman. And there are enough people who saw Pauline Thompson that night with an American serviceman for the Sid to just conclude accurately that, look, the the common thing in in both these murders, and he believed they were both undertaken by the same murderer, um, the common feature they have that's known is an American serviceman. So he he almost instantly um, said, we're looking for a US soldier. And American military authorities are running their own parallel investigation. Yeah, they were running their own investigation and it overlapped and what was happening with, with the parallel investigations with, again, little little hints along the way. And one of the little hints was a phone call to um, a Melbourne police station by a man with an American accent after the Ivy McLeod murder and um, I think it was before the Pauline Thompson murder, saying... You should be looking for an American soldier who walks on his hands. Now, that little piece of information, if it had been passed to the right people, would have identified Eddie straight away because he was renowned throughout his unit and throughout a couple of the hotels in that part of town for doing a party trick of walking from one end of the bar to the other on his hands. And... uh because there were the, the parallel investigations, it wasn't until after Pauline Thompson was murdered that the real information sharing began. And uh, once that happened, the outcome, I think, was inevitable. They were always going to get, catch Eddie. It was just a matter of when. Unfortunately, they, they don't catch him quickly enough, though. 
Leansky's next victim would be Gladys Hosking. How did he he find her? Was it by chance? Yes, it, it was, Eric. It was another one of these opportunistic murders that he'd been out drinking all day and was going into the, the city to, to uh, watch another movie with a, a couple of Australians, but decided he'd just wander, which is something he did a lot of, and was wandering back to Camp Pell and almost literally bumped into Gladys Hosking, who was a small woman, small middle-aged woman, again, quite vivacious. And I think all three of the women he, he murdered were short, um, had dark hair, generally short, dark hair, and I suspect his mother was short and had short, dark hair as well. But he literally bumped into her. It had been raining. She had an umbrella. Um, she lived not far from Camp Pell, um, probably only a couple of hundred yards from, from the edge of the camp in, in uh, Royal Park. He said he was a bit lost, a bit confused. She offered to walk him back to the edge of the camp. And there's about an hour missing. I don't know what they were doing for an hour uh, between when he met her outside a, uh, a store and when a guard on duty near Camp Pell saw uh, Eddie climbing over a fence. But I presume they were talking and walking for, for that hour. Uh, Eddie murdered her again in a particularly brutal way. And again, he arranged the body to, to shock and confront whoever found it. Um, there's a broad generalisation of murderers into organised and unorganised or disorganised. And Eddie, I don't know where he fits because the, the first murder was, was clearly opportunistic. The second one, I think, was planned. Um, the third one was opportunistic. But in each case, the, the first, second and third murder were progressively more risky for him. That uh, The first one, there was no one around. The second one was in a quiet place, but there were people nearby. The third one was more or less in the open on the side of a road uh, and the edge of a parkland. So it seemed to me that, that Eddie was getting less and less careful about where he struck and how he struck, almost as if like the, I guess, the William Hirons, you know, catch me before I kill again. But this one was, was um, I think he was always going to be caught after the third one. Women in, in Melbourne must have been just terrified at this point. They were. And again, uh, family stories are that um, – my mother, who, who was recently married, she'd only been married a short while, and her sisters would not go anywhere after dark alone. Um, there were instances of, of businesses letting their female staff go instead of at five o'clock when the, the business shut down at three o'clock so they wouldn't have to be out outdoors in the dark. There were other stories, other instances of um, larger businesses installing beds so that their female staff, if they chose to, could stay overnight rather than risk travelling through what was then a, a darkened Melbourne. Um, there were many recorded incidents of American servicemen being assaulted by Australian men. Um, there was just a sudden loss of trust between the, the, the Australian community, civilian community, and, and the American servicemen. they so welcome just a couple of months earlier. 
So what were the, the tips or clues that finally led police to Eddie Leonsky? The main indicator was where Gladys was murdered was in the overburden. The, the soil that had been dug out of an air raid trench, and it was a particularly distinctive yellow clay mud. And when they uh, cordoned off the area and examined the body, the um, forensic specialist said, whoever has murdered Gladys will have been covered in this quite distinctive yellow mud. It was, as I said, about 200 yards from the edge of, of Camp Pell and therefore probably only 400 yards from Eddie's tent, which was on that side of the camp. And an examination of Eddie's tent subsequently um, found that the yellow clay, all, not all over it, but in, in a number of places, but before then, he was picked out of a lineup that after the, the third murder, there'd been a, a previous lineup that, that Eddie had um, not been picked out of. This one was much more comprehensive. And again, he was marched, he was one of a group of, I think they marched them past in groups of 50, past some witnesses. And he wasn't identified. And amongst the witnesses were a woman who he tried to attack. Uh, just a few days earlier, but his attack had been interrupted by the woman's uncle. Now, a group of policemen, MPs, were standing there after the final parade and they hadn't been able to pick him out of the, the various lineups. And as they were standing there talking, the uncle of, of the most recent woman who'd been assaulted said, that's the man there, I've seen him. So, And it was Eddie. He was detained and arrested on the spot taken to the stockade, and the interviewing began. And the interviews, and Sid McGuffey was uh, one of the prime interviewers. There were Americans present. And one stage during the interview process, Eddie said, what will happen to me if, if he denied them any knowledge of them, but what would happen to me if I was found guilty of, of these murders? And in Victoria, the penalty for, for murder, if found guilty, was the death penalty. And the death penalty was carried out by hanging. Um, he kind of leveraged that off with the Americans who were present. And they said, well, you wouldn't face a civil trial uh, if we were responsible. You'd face a court-martial and in court-martials, all those things. And that was what prompted him to confess and uh, halfway through the second round of interrogations and uh, they'd marched him around all the murder sites and whatnot, he confessed, and that confession led to the court-martial where he was charged with uh, various crimes under the, I think it's the Universal Code of Military Justice, uh, found guilty, and, and uh, again, the death sentence was, was passed on him. There was an Aboriginal tracker used during the investigation, right? Yeah, there was. He was a very good tracker. They, they uh, are amazing Indigenous, um, especially Bushmen. Uh, unfortunately, the murder scene, and this was for the Gladys Hosking murder, was, was so, it had been raining, there'd been lots of people walking around where they shouldn't have been. The The tracker was able to identify several sets of, of, of footprints and, and marks, uh, hand marks, knee marks in, in the soft yellow clay, but couldn't follow them beyond, you know, 
probably five yards from the murder scene. Back after a few brief messages. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. So this situation must have been complicated, deciding whether Australia or the United States would be the ones to try him for murder. It was in that there was a uh, an act of the Australian Parliament which allowed for foreign soldiers to be tried under their own laws, but it was an act that had been passed before the United States had entered the war. And... When it was passed, I think it, it, it may have referred specifically to British, French, you know, those allies. The um, entry of the Americans into the war appeared to complicate it slightly, but to overcome that complication, a, a government regulation was passed allowing Australian authorities to hand over uh, American servicemen for trial under American law, and in this case, American military law. And uh, it's still the only time I'm aware of, and I think the only time it's ever happened, that a US citizen has been tried under US military law for a crime against the state laws of Victoria. So he was tried for crimes under an, another jurisdiction's law. Um, I believe the various regulations and agreements that were signed covered off on all that. Otherwise, he may have been tried illegally. 
Just before the trial, or during it, I don't exactly recall when, Leonsky received psychiatric examinations by multiple doctors. What was their general consensus on his mental health? Yeah, the first part of the trial was an adjournment so that he could be examined by uh, three psychiatrists, two of them nominated by the prosecution and one by the defence. And the defence believed quite firmly that he was mentally unfit to stand trial or if he was found fit to stand trial at the time he committed the murders, he was mentally incompetent. Um, The three psychiatrists came to a very common set of agreements and it was that Eddie was sane at the time of his trial and that he was sane at the time he committed the murders. So that whole defence of insanity um, went out the window when the three-person panel reported on their findings. Wasn't there some controversy about him claiming he was killing women because of the sound of their voices? Could you explain that? Yeah, he very much said uh, in in not in evidence because he, he uh, they wouldn't let him give evidence, wouldn't let him testify on his own behalf. But during the interviews, at one point, he said he wanted their voices, and um, the reason he strangled them was to get the voice out so he could possess it. And I found that. Well, it is obviously very bizarre, but what I also found was that the time the murders were committed was a time when the film uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had just played in a number of Melbourne cinemas. And in that film, uh, Mr. Hyde, one of the reasons he gives for murdering women is to collect their voices. Now, Eddie was a very keen moviegoer, and I just have a suspicion at the back of my mind that he's consciously and or unconsciously picked up on the uh, Mr. Hyde explanation for murder and weaved that into his own story about why he did what he did. Um, He wasn't, he didn't testify on his own behalf because he was very narcissistic and I think his defence attorneys believed that uh, if he got up there and and, uh, was cross-examined, he would certainly trip himself up. And I think that was a wise move by them as well. Yeah, for sure. As you've already mentioned, he, he was prone to break down into tears over various issues. But once the, the verdict was handed down and he was sentenced to death, he joked about it, didn't, didn't he? He made liberal use of gallows humor while waiting to be killed. He did. He was... Would have been regarded by the uh, people at the watch house where he was held in, in Melbourne as almost the perfect prisoner, that he gave no trouble at all. He loved cracking jokes with both the, the MPs who were there and this Victoria police who, who were in charge of the watch house. And it, as, as you said, it was quite macabre. He would say things like, I don't know why you've got the long face. I'm the one who's going to get the next stretch. And just what, to me, were not only inappropriate, but were just quite bizarre comments. He also 
fell in love with sketching and writing. He would write a letter to his mother every Sunday night. He would write letters to lots of other people. Uh, I've got a copy of, of uh, one of the letters he wrote to a young Australian woman because quite a few young Australian women wrote to him. And uh, he just refers to once I'm over the few problems I'm facing at the moment, babe, maybe we can exchange more letters and I read it and I thought, you've just murdered three women. You've attempted to murder at least another three. You've sent, you're sentenced to be hanged to death and you're exchanging these light, almost love letters with, with women you've never met. And there's a lot of dichotomous kind of influences happening around this time. And I think for Eddie, he would have appears to have had an almost overwhelming sense of relief that his entire life has been taken. He doesn't have to make decisions anymore. All those decisions are being made for him, and it appears to be a a burden that was lifted off his shoulders. At one point, he actually demonstrated on Detective McGuffey how he strangled his three victims. He did, and Sid McGuffey to his dying day, remained shaken by, by what happened. And he asked McGuffey, would he like to uh, see how he did it? And McGuffey said yes. And I think from memory there were either four or six MPs in what was a very large cell. And they drew their, their uh, service weapons, their, their uh, sidearms, just in case Eddie didn't stop. And he said, I set them up with... I think it was the right hand, and he rested his right hand on Sid McGuffey's left shoulder, and he said, then I did it with this one, and like a rattlesnake striking, his left hand just flashed across, and the thumbs crossed on the front of Sid McGuffey's throat, and he squeezed just for a second, and McGuffey said, it was the strongest muscular squeezing he ever experienced, and it was only for half a second, but McGuffey said, I felt myself going in that half second. And Sid McGuffey was a, a very you know, medium-sized but very, very solid, tough policeman, and he said the women would have had no hope whatsoever. Were there any theatrics at Leonsky's execution, or was it a, a pretty straightforward affair? It was a very much a straightforward affair, but... Um, very stage managed. He was woken up early one morning, um, dressed, escorted into the back of a, a police van, taken probably oh, two and a half, three miles to uh, the main prison in, in Melbourne, escorted in through a side entrance into the condemned cell. The, um, the gallows were just outside the cell. He was offered a cigarette by one of the MP guards and had only smoked about half of it when another officer, US Army officer, came in and said, it's time, Eddie, let out, and within probably 45 seconds um, had been executed. And at the background, as a background to all this, I, I think MacArthur, General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, was more than aware of the impact of Eddie's murders on the relationship between his army and the Australian civilian population. And nothing would ever be written down, but I just feel that somewhere MacArthur or his aide has said, find this man, find him guilty and kill him. Um, because it was very 
very process driven the, the, the whole thing that in Victoria at that stage the law was if a criminal was executed by hanging the body had to be left for an hour before it could be lowered just to make certain it was dead Eddie's body was lowered within two minutes of, of being dropped through the uh, the trap door in a enclosed space below were two US Army um, medical technicians who gave him a, a lethal inject or gave the body a lethal injection just in case the uh, the execution hadn't worked completely so Eddie was tried found guilty executed in fairly short order did his death relieve some of the, the tension for Melbourneians? I think it did. I think what happened was um, the execution, the, the trial was covered fairly comprehensively. The verdict was covered comprehensively. The The process following the, the verdict, the review process in the United States and the all the way up to the president was given uh, exposure in, in the Australian newspapers as was his execution uh, in November. By then as well, there'd been some battlefield successes for um, Allied forces in the Southwest Pacific. And I think uh, as well, the vast numbers of American troops that had been in Melbourne were now in northern Australia going through jungle training, things like that. So they weren't as visible and the process was played out, if not in public, it was reported publicly. So I think, yes, they had moved on a bit by the time Eddie was executed. Leonsky never saw a, a day of combat, did he? No, no. And I, I doubt whether he would have. He, he seemed to me to be the type of, of soldier who um, would avoid combat because there was too much happening out of combat, that he he loved the social life. He loved mixing with that that demi mon, the the semi criminal element. That was his life, and it was his life in New York, and it was his life in Melbourne. And I just have the feeling that he would have avoided combat at all costs, like as a, a shirker or a, a deserter. Um, no, I was. I think I think the American Army calls it gold bricking. Uh, as someone who would always find a way to avoid doing the hard things. And uh, a shirker, yeah, I think he would have found physical ailments, other things like that, to avoid uh, a combat role. Was there any attempt by his mother to come and visit him before his execution day? No, they. the family tried to keep the news from his mother, but... Um, she was informed, I think, the day of his execution or, or a reporter was able to to say to her, what do you think about the fact your son has either been executed or is to be executed? And um, that just put her into a, a, a tailspin, that his sister Helen had been the, the stalwart of the family and had taken upon herself all the publicly reported interactions for the Leonsky family. Uh, his mother's health especially her mental health, was always very delicate. And uh, Eddie wanted to spare her that, as did uh, his sister Helen. So he had a nickname, the Brownout Strangler. Who, who came up with that? Uh, the newspaper reporters in Melbourne, that 
Melbourne being so far from the front line, they didn't have a blackout like European cities had to to uh, black the entire thing out so enemy submarines and enemy aircraft couldn't see the city. In Melbourne, they, they had a, a lesser um, a lesser regime, which they called the brownout. Um, it was things like street lights would have uh, every second light bulb would be removed, so only every second light would be on, and it would have a, a much lower wattage light bulb in it and um, headlights on cars would be taped over leaving just a very thin strip for um, light to shine it um, I think it was as much an effort to mobilize the entire public for the war effort as it was to deny the enemy whether it was Germany or Japan uh, deny the enemy a site of, of uh, Melbourne or Sydney or Australian cities. Interesting. When did U.S. forces finally leave Melbourne? Oh, they were here till the end of the Pacific War. Um, Australia developed a couple of very good training uh, facilities in northern Australia, one at Canungra in, in Queensland, and as well as training Units would be rotated back to Australia from places like Guadalcanal for R&R to to rebuild and recuperate after uh, some of the very, very vicious fighting. So there were Australian, uh, there were American elements in Australia right up until the end of the war. Um, Over in Western Australia, uh, which is the opposite side of the country, um, the Perth, the port below Perth is Fremantle, and that was a major US submarine base for the entire war. Uh, there were uh, air bases throughout northern Queensland and the Northern Territory that US bombing raids were, were carried out, as I said, right until the end of the war from uh, bases on the Australian mainland. Are there any still existing reminders of the murders in Melbourne? Plaques? mentions in museums, etc. There are, but they're, they're kind of few and far between. That Where Eddie was held uh, for the trial and uh, up until the time he was executed is part of what was called the Melbourne Watch House, which is a, a complex of, of cells that were pretty much used to lock up drunks on Saturday night or it's next door to the Victorian, or what was the Victorian Supreme Court. So prisoners awaiting appearance in court were held there. It's the Victorian Watch House is now um, almost a living museum. Uh, they conduct tours through it. Uh, so you can go and see where Eddie was, and they mentioned that this is the cell that, that held Eddie Leonsky. And I actually sat in the cell, and it's, Obviously, the walls have been painted over many times in that terrible institutional green. But I remember sitting there thinking, I wonder if you could remove the layers of paint one by one, whether somewhere there are the sketches of, of women that Eddie drew on the cell walls. And I wonder, yeah, if you dug down there, you'd find he used to write notes to himself and draw on the walls and that. Um, he still remembered. Uh, there was a film made about the story in the, the mid-1980s, but it was so, I won't say badly executed, but but the story was so modified by the uh, the writers to, it, 
it was barely recognisable as, as the Eddie Leonsky story, just as the character uh, of Eddie in it was, was, I don't think, anywhere near the real Eddie. Um, so he's remembered. Um, I, I think I mentioned in the book, because I, I can remember my parents talking about this, that um, wayward teenage girls for the rest of the war, I suspect, were told by their parents, uh, no, you, you're staying, you're not, you, I know you want to go out Saturday night, but you're staying home. Because never forget, they weren't certain whether or not Eddie was alone when he did what he did. And um, so there was just this uh, Eddie Leonsky factor, fear factor to uh, stop the young girls from going out late at night. Is there anyone connected with these events still around? Were you able to get any first-hand accounts? Um, only in my memory, talking to my mother and my aunties, I, I did have a bit of luck in that the prosecutor uh, in the court-martial was uh, a Floridian named Hayford Enwall. And Hayford's son, Peter, uh, still lives in Florida, in, in Gainesville, and, and I exchanged emails with Peter. And uh, several years ago, I was in, in America visiting one of our, our sons, and his family lived in Washington, and we did a road trip down to Florida. And I got in touch with Peter Enwall and said, look, we'll be not all that far from where you live. And he invited my son and I to join him for dinner. So I had a very pleasant dinner at a, a restaurant in, in Gainesville with Peter Enwall, and we spoke about his father and um, his mother was Australian. His father married a, a girl from Melbourne. So it was, for me, it was fantastic catching up with someone whose father was a central figure uh, in the, the, the trial in particular and whose father was a, a brilliant lawyer. And I can remember Peter saying to me that his father said that of all the cases he tried, and, and Hayford Enwall finished up a professor of law at, at uh, University of Florida, he said the Eddie Leonsky one was the most significant trial he ever appeared in, not because of what happened or anything, but because he had to get it right, because the relations between the Australian Army, uh, the American Army and the Australian people relied on him getting it right. And uh, I thought that was a, a wonderful little story, which I, I'm not certain I included in the book. So this book is available as an ebook, And you told me before we, we started this interview that it, it will be available as a paperback in the U.S. at, at some point. Yeah, Hachette notified me last week, Hachette Australia, that um, next year they intend to publish it in the United States. And each year Hachette, which is a, an international uh, publisher, goes to its subsidiaries and either chooses or asks them to nominate just a few books that they think might be um, of interest in the uh, North American market. And, and fortunately, my book was one of them. So I'm hoping... Um, it gets a, a, a general release and a wide release because it's pretty much an Australian-American story. It's 50-50 it's for me. And I think there's a lot of Americans who, who might find it interesting. Yes, I completely agree. It's a great book. So you've written many books. I want to ask you this as a final question. Is there any title that you've written that you think my listeners would be especially interested in? Like a favourite of yours, one that was particularly popular? 
Yeah, I, I've loved every book I've ever written, to be honest. But from an American perspective, the one before this was called The Ragtag Fleet, and it's a story of an American Army unit known as the U.S. Army Small Ship Section, which supported U.S. forces on the northern coast of, of uh, New Guinea early in the war. And I wrote the book because although it was an American Army unit, most of the people who served in it were Australian fishermen who were too old or, or too infirm by reason of, of missing fingers and eyes and whatnot for service in the Australian armed services, but joined the US Army and were probably, that unit was more responsible than any other unit for the uh, American and Allied success during the Battle of, of Burma on the North Coast. So that's a, a really good story for Americans because it's an American unit started by two amazing American brothers. In terms of true crime, um, I wrote a book called Glen Rowan, which is a story of, of the end of, of Australia's most famous, we call them bush rangers, um, you'd call them outlaws. And it was an outlaw gang led by Ned Kelly who um, took on the Victoria Police at a little little town in, in the bush named Glen Rowan. And I wanted to tell that story because the Kelly gang are the most famous bush rangers in Australia. Everyone knows that the gang was destroyed at Glen Rowan and Ned was captured and later executed. But until I started researching it, I didn't know that they held 60 people hostage in the hotel there. I didn't know that they planned to derail a train and kill dozens, if not uh, more, uh, Victoria police. And the other connection, I think, to what we're talking about is Eddie Leonsky fell in love with Ned Kelly, the story of Ned Kelly, while he was awaiting execution. And uh, I, I didn't know that till I started researching uh, Murder at Dusk, and I'd already written Glen Rowan, and to me it was just this, almost the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, that hang on, I'm writing about an American mass murderer whose hero was Ned Kelly, who was central to one of my earlier books. So, yeah, I think there's a couple of others that readers who have an interest in military, American military or, or true crime uh, might find interesting. And Ned Kelly is a famous, famous figure. He, he's like the Australian Jesse James, Billy the Kid, right? Very much so, yeah. Oh, maybe you could could come back on at some point and talk about that book. I'd love to explore that subject more here. Oh, look, more than happy to do that, Eric. I I, I became a writer oh, 10 years ago after a, a career doing other things, and the focus has always been on, on stories that people know a little bit about, but when they discover the full story, it makes it that much more interesting. And they're a pleasure to write, and uh, mostly I've, I've, the feedback I get is they're, they're good to read. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Eric. I've been speaking to Ian W. Shaw, author of Murder at Dusk, How U.S. Soldier and Smiling Psychopath Eddie Leonsky Terrorized Wartime Melbourne. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. 
I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.